Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Jessica Verdi, author of the YA contemporary novels, My Life After Now, The Summer I Wasn't Me, What You Left Behind, as well as And She Was. Jess received her MFA in writing for children from the new school and is a freelance editor of romance, women's fiction, chick lit, YA, and kid lit. Jessica joined me today to talk about querying a first novel, landing her agent, and breaking out of writing only one genre. The greatest treasure, a most dangerous magic. Growing up with a traveling circus, Genevieve Flannery is accustomed to a life most teenagers could never imagine. But when her mother leaves behind a dangerous, magical legacy, it threatens to unravel everything and everyone Genevieve holds dear. Slight by Jennifer Summersby. A lot of my listeners are aspiring authors themselves. So if you could tell us a little about your querying journey and how you landed an agent, that is always a much appreciated story. I was an actor for a long time and was getting really frustrated with the audition process and having to wait to be cast in something. Which You had to keep waiting and waiting. And I was looking for another outlet and writing became that thing for me. I've always loved books and literature and it was a natural next step for me. I could do it on my own terms. I could do it whenever, wherever. And it was much more creatively satisfying. But I realized I didn't really know how to do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I actually applied to graduate school, ended up going to the new school writing for children program. There I met amazing authors, colleagues. It was really through them that I figured out the whole, not only writing, rising, critique process, all of that, but the actual publishing business, Mm -hmm. like how to get an agent and whatnot. We all kind of really helped each other with looking at each other's queries and going to bookstores, pulling books off the shelves that I think our books might line up with in similar genre and looking in the back of the acknowledgements and seeing who those authors' agents were and compiling a list and really just making connections and all of that stuff. So it was really sort of a collaborative, we'll help each other out during this crazy time experience in grad school. Before grad school, I had queried a book and I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, my first completed novel, which is not saying much. It was not very good. And it was way too long and it didn't really fall within a particular genre. It was sort of like adult chiclet meets magical realism, meets romance. I don't know. And that query process was terrible and went nowhere. And the second time around, after I knew a little bit more, it was much more civilized. And I did get a lot of rejections as everyone does, but I ended up getting an offer from my agent, Kate McKean, who was already representing a couple of my grad school colleagues. So it was sort of a 
direct referral situation. We've been together for like seven years now. It's been a great relationship. We've sold four novels and a picture book. It's so nice to feel like you're supported by your agent, not just for a particular project, but for your career as a whole. So I feel very fortunate. That's wonderful. I know that having an agent that is there for you for the long haul, not for one particular project, and also to support your career in that sense that they are supportive of you, changing genres and things like that, that and age ranges too. That is huge because sometimes with publishing, they really want to keep you in a niche because your readers are expecting a certain thing from you. It's lovely Um, that your agent is letting you, I guess, blossom out. And that's not to say that I haven't experienced quite a lot on you know the editorial side of things from publishers about thing within my brand that happens everywhere you look in publishing. So I haven't been immune to that, but I have on the agent side of things definitely felt encouraged to branch out, which is really nice. So you were talking about you went to the new school and I like your point about you not only have to learn how to write, but you have to learn about the business. You have to learn yeah. how publishing works. There's no real way to like pick up a book and learn everything about publishing (laughs) or like take a class and learn everything about publishing. It's really sort of a jump in with both feet and learn as you go sort of industry. And it's so interesting that even now when I talk to people in my life who aren't necessarily in the publishing world, they don't understand what editing means. This is a very, very widespread misconception in the world that editing is copy editing. Mm -hmm. It's fixing grammar, punctuation, moving commas. And sure, that's certainly part of it, but there's so much more that goes into it as far as big picture changing the entire book around that people really don't understand because they don't understand how much work goes into it with your editor in the editorial process. They don't understand that it's not like you sell a book and then it's on the shelf the next month. It exactly. takes you know a year and a half to two years. I necessarily didn't have those exact misconceptions, but there were plenty of things that I didn't know. And how are you to know how all of this works until you are in it and surrounded by it and other people going through it and making connections and talking. The new school was great in a lot of ways. I mean, while our classes weren't necessarily about the industry side of things, there were several panels and weekend seminars and stuff with agents, with editors, learning the basics of how publishing Mm -hmm. works Mm -hmm. as far as querying agents, why editorial houses will usually only look at agented submissions, the editorial process, developmental editing, line edits, copy edits, production, marketing, publicity, and so on and so on and so on. I remember once David Levithan, his class, which was so wonderful, he had Co Booth come. And I think he was out of town, if I remember correctly. And Co Booth was our sort of substitute teacher that day. Mm-hmm. And she was like, ask me anything. And so we just asked her all about what it's like. How does an advance work? Mm -hmm. How do royalties work? That was great because it was really this kind of stuff that no one will really sit you down and tell you unless you ask or unless you're given an opportunity. Like if you sell a book for X amount, then you have to earn that out before you get any more money and how do royalties work. I'm constantly still having these conversations with people who are new to the industry and people who aren't in the industry at all, just explaining 
the basics of this crazy world called publishing. And I had this idea in my head that the hardest book to get published is your first one, Mm -hmm. and then it'll be easier. And that's not necessarily true. You could have sold a book, you could have sold 10 books, and then you might have trouble selling another one for whatever reason. Sometimes it's harder to sell another one if you're previous ones didn't do the sales that your publisher was hoping they would do and just all kinds of things that's very nuanced. Also how subjective the industry is and how your book might be amazing in every way, but if there isn't an agent or an editor who personally connects to it, it might not see the light of day. And that's really frustrating. Obviously, so many amazing things about publishing and getting your words out there for people to read. And it's, I feel very fortunate. But at the same time, it's a really wacky business that doesn't really seem to have a lot of rules. And it's sort of just jump in and learn as you go. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. When I was learning about the industry, which is a important step if you don't want to be totally clueless once you get there, I just right. was on a lot of writers forums and people were just mm-hmm. chatting and there would be writers that were agented and maybe some that were published, some with smaller presses. And so I learned from other people. And then even though you Hello? can do that and immerse yourself as much as possible, when I got published, yeah. I was talking to my editor and she had finished the edits and we were good to go. And she's, I got an email, you know, like three months later and she's like, Hey, first pass pages are coming in the mail. And I'm like, they're due back, (laughs) you know, at this date. And I'm like, okay, cool. What are first pass pages? (laughs) What is, yeah. What is that? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it (laughs) is definitely learned by experience. And I do think that as a debut novelist, they are very patient with you. They will answer your question. They know that there is no handbook out there that walks you right. through each step. And so always ask questions. Like that is my biggest thing. Do not be afraid to ask questions. Yeah, absolutely. For all of the weird, uncomfortable parts of publishing, there are just as many, if not more, really amazing parts. And one of the most amazing parts is that Everyone is very welcoming and generous with their time and information and you can ask questions and people will answer your questions and they won't you know, make you feel stupid. A lot of publishers are buying debut novels from people and it's not like you have to have this huge resume under your belt to prove yourself. Like It's all about the work. It's all about taking a chance on new voices and what other industry is like right. that? You know, that is so cool. And if they are buying a book from someone who's new to the industry, they understand that this is going to be a new experience. They're happy to walk you through it step by step and hold your hand sometimes. I do love it and hate it. Coming up, how Jessica handles hot button issues in her books and the pushback that can come from writing about such topics. It's hard to find the truth beneath the lies you tell yourself in this suspenseful, lyrical debut about four best friends, one beautiful boy, and a deception that ruined everything. Karen M. McManus says Kit Frick's See All the Stars demands to be read in one sitting. You won't want to miss this summer page-turner that Kirkus calls a gripping and atmospheric contemporary thriller. See All the Stars by Kit Frick. Available now. You approach a lot of big issues in your books. Your titles have featured everything from an HIV-positive teen 
to a queer teen attending a conversion camp to teen parenting from the POV of the father. And most recently, a Mm -hmm. teen who discovers their parent is transgender. So you've received multiple starred reviews from major reviewers about your adept handling of these subjects. And obviously, you've got an array there of different things. So any tips on how authors can approach hot button topics without actually pushing people's buttons? Yeah, that's a good question. I should say that what works for me might not work for everyone. And you should find your voice in your own way. That's what writing is all about. If there's a story that you want to tell or you need to tell, you should tell it for that reason, because no one else can tell the story the same way. And that's what I love about writing so much. If you sit in a classroom of 30 people and the teacher says, write a boy meets girl story, every single person would write that story differently. That's what's so magical about this telling stories job that we have. So with that in mind, that like definitely stick with your own gut. For me, a couple of things. One is I try to keep the haters out of my head as much as possible. There are always going to be people who don't like your work, regardless of what you're writing about. There are always going to be people who love it and there are always going to be people who hate it. If you're writing about real life subjects and hot button issues in particular, you will have a lot more people coming out of the woodwork to tell you what's wrong with your work or why it's inappropriate. So you have to be prepared for that. But at the same time, you do not have to worry about those Mm -hmm. people. If we wrote for the reviewers or we wrote for the angry people on the internet. We'd all be telling very boring, heartless stories. So that's something I try to really keep in mind is that there will be people who are going to give me crap for this. That's okay. Because for every one of those, there's someone out there or more who is going to want and need this book. A lot of this comes naturally, but it does help to keep it in mind too, that I'm writing about things I care about. I'm a believer in really having conversations and that old adage, don't talk about politics or religion. (laughs) Um, I I don't personally subscribe to that. I, I think this world is crazy. And the only way we're ever going to find any common ground is if we share our points of view. I always try to have conversations. I always try to use my work to start conversations or continue conversations about subjects that I think should be talked about a bit more. So for example, my first published novel, My Life After Now, like you said, is about an HIV positive teen. That was something that is not my own personal story, but it is a subject that's close to me in my life. I remember growing up in the 90s, we in school were constantly told about HIV AIDS and safe sex and everything. Like I was even um, part of like a club in high school called STARS, which was students teaching AIDS reduction strategies. And we would 
go around to the schools and, you know, talk to kindergartners about not touching blood if you see someone who's bleeding or talk to middle schoolers about very generally the ways that one can contract HIV or talking to high schoolers about safe sex or not sharing needles or whatever the age appropriate thing was. And it was just such a present part of our world. And lately that hasn't been so much of a topic of conversation, partially because people aren't developing AIDS as much. Um, people aren't dying as much because of the advancements in antiretroviral mm-hmm. drugs, which is amazing. But then people become complacent and they don't understand why this is still a huge problem. And this is young people, teens and people in their 20s are contracting HIV still at the highest rate. So that's just an example of something that I wanted to talk about, not through didactic writing or through nonfiction, but through a story that is entertaining and a good read, but also might help someone walk in someone else's Mm -hmm. shoes for a minute and think about what it's like to be someone who is living with HIV or someone who is gay and is not accepted by their parents or someone who is transgender and grew up in a time when the world didn't know what transgender was. These are the particular issues that are important to me. But regardless of that, like I think it's important to write what you care about because a reader will know. A reader can tell if you are Mm -hmm. not writing with heart. After the big Twilight explosion, like there were so many writers who were trying to write vampire stories because that was what was hot at the moment. But if you're not writing something that you want to write, if you're only writing for what you think the industry wants, there's going to be something missing out of that story. And it's not something you can really pinpoint, but it's just heart. It's a feeling. Readers can tell if writers are not writing about something they care about. And if you really do care about vampire stories, then by all means, go for it. But don't write that just because you think that's what the market wants. It's important to find what you care about and tell that story only the way you can tell it and not really worry about what the haters are going to say. And if there is something in there that is maybe considered being a little alienating or going a bit too far, that's what editors are for. That's what the editorial process is for, to find that balance. But I try not to hold back. I think that when you are drafting it, you have to go with your gut and you have to deliver whatever is the best version, uh, voice and instinct of what you have inside of you is going to tell you what that is. And if it is too much, yes, you're right. That is your editor's job to say, hey, let's peel this back a little bit. That happened to me with A Madness So Discreet. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned your first book isn't necessarily your most difficult one to get published. Mine was my third. And it was because some of the content in A Madness So Discreet and there were concerns and they're valid concerns. It was something that uh, I had worked with my editor and we found a way for me to be completely true to the feel and the voice of the book and curve some of the things that were going Mm -hmm. to make some readers unable to get through the book. You make some concessions, that is to be expected. The other thing that I love what you're saying is that when you're dealing with a subject that is sensitive, such as the topics that you mentioned, there will be people that you upset. That's just all there is to it. And you cannot listen to those voices. Because then what's the point? 
if you're going to worry about all the reasons why you shouldn't, then you're not going to have any reasons left why you should. Lastly, the pros and cons of getting an MFA and why everyone needs an editor. We mentioned before you have an MFA in writing for children. I know many authors who have formal training in writing and many that don't. So you talked a little bit about this, but if you could go into some more detail, what do you feel that your MFA garnered you? Did it teach you anything you don't feel that you could have discovered independently? Age old debate, right? To MFA or not to MFA. And there are arguments for both sides, for sure. One argument for why it's absolutely crazy to get an MFA is how expensive it is. <laughs> Shouldn't be something that's required any sort of graduate level or any expensive education. Should not be required for people to tell stories. Anyone can tell a story if they have something to say and if they're willing to work hard at it. For me, I felt like it was the right way to go because I really was entering the whole writing world as a newbie. I was always a big reader. I was that kid who would go to the library every week and just check out 20 books and then swap them out the next week. But I had always like sort of had this idea in my head that in order to be an author, this unattainable, magical thing, author, you had to have been the type of person who was writing stories since you were two years old and it was the only thing you ever wanted to do and you went to college and graduate school and everything for it and you never had any other aspirations and you are a special chosen person. When I realized, started to realize that that maybe wasn't necessarily the case, I was in my late 20s and I felt like I still have plenty of time to start a new career, but at the same time, like I am coming to this a little bit later than some other people and I want to learn. I want to just dive in and learn. So for me, the MFA was really great. And I had actually done my undergrad at the new school as well. So I went to NYU for two years and then stopped to be an actor and then finally finished years later at the new school. And it was an environment that I felt comfortable in. I really like it there. I like how open and accepting they are and it's not rigid in any way. And so I knew it was a place that I felt like I would be able to learn and thrive. And I did. And I felt like the program you know, nothing's perfect, of course, but for me, it was a combination of learning about the industry through the school, but also mainly through my peers and us helping each other and learning about writing and learning about the history of young adult literature and children's literature and listening to great authors come and speak and just submersing myself in that world was very useful to me. But I don't think that 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 has to be the case for everyone. I think it really depends on you. To go back to your question, nothing that I learned or was exposed to at the new school was something that I couldn't have learned or been exposed to in the real world. It just was more concentrated and more direct and quicker. No matter where you live, there's writers coming to bookstores to talk and there are seminars on the internet and there are critique groups on the internet. There are lots of ways to find your way through this business. As an editor, I work with a lot of authors who have not had any, quote, formal training and that's okay. It's all good. What really matters is your dedication, your passion. You have to have some talent. Listen, that's part of it. have to have a knack for telling a story and for stringing words together, but you can learn and grow in that talent as well. So I really think it depends on the person, but I am glad I did my MFA. I mean, I'm going to have student loans forever, 
I think the, the community in some ways is what plays into it for them. And there is a huge element of that, mm-hmm. I think, when we're talking about MFAs. Yeah. And then they always end it with saying, and sure. I'll be paying off the debt for the rest of my life. So that's, you know, I get that. I get that. And <laughs> we make those choices. Yeah. We decide what we're going to invest Absolutely. in. Absolutely. For some people, that's what it's going to be. I like what you're saying about talent too. I have a workshop yeah. that I teach and I talk about five things that you have to have in order to get published. And the fifth one is talent. And they're always like, wow, that's at the bottom. I'm like, yeah, it honestly is. Because it's something that you can learn. Yes, we all get better with each project. And that's kind of beautiful. I do feel like my most recent novel is my best one in a lot of ways. And I love all my books, of course. But I feel proud that like I've grown so much and I've learned so much. And I've put those skills to action. And uh, that literally is every single author. They grow with each project. I'm an editor and sometimes there are authors Mm -hmm. who don't want to listen to a word you're saying and who are just like, no, my book is perfect the way it is. No, it's not. Those are the authors who never really branch out into making this a career for themselves or growing that talent and improving with every project. But then there are the other authors who understand that their book is not perfect and it's hard to hear that and your soul is crushed a little bit because writing is so personal and you're pouring your heart out, even if you're not writing about yourself at all, even if it's pure fiction, still comes from within you. To have someone tell you that, oh yeah, this is problematic in all these ways can hurt. But then you say, okay, let's work on it and let's learn and let's listen and let's fix this and show me how I can make this better. And those are the people who, regardless of their level of talent starting out, those are the people who will prosper, the people who have that that work Absolutely. ethic. I have met very few writers who are egotistical. And by writers, I mean people that are published and also people that are not published yet, people that I just run into that want to talk to me about writing. and. Right without exception, the really egotistical authors are not published. And it is because they don't want to hear what they need to do to make it better. Absolutely. And I'm not saying you can't be defensive because you totally can't. I mean, that is my first reaction when I get an edit letter and I open it is that you don't understand me. But if an editor and a professional are telling you that there are issues, that there are elements, that there are voice, whatever those are, you've got to listen. And then it's not necessarily the editor is always 100% right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tell my editor no sometimes, but 85% of the time, maybe higher, maybe 90, he's dead on. Yeah, absolutely. And another way to look at it is if Mm -hmm. sometimes an editor is like, here's an issue, here's how I think you should fix it. You can look at that and say, Mm -hmm. okay, I agree that there's an issue, but I don't agree with how you think I should fix it. Let me do this thing to address the issue, but this is more within my vision for the story. That is totally cool because you're still listening to the fact that there's an issue there. I hear you. You offer editing services with a focus on romance, women's fiction, young adult, and middle grade. So you are a senior editor at Crimson Romance. So talk (laughs) a bit about your approach to editing and how you go about working with someone when they hire you. I 
love editing. You know, it's hard to love your day job so much when you want to be writing more because I don't have enough hours in the day to do all the writing and do all the editing. And I have a new baby at home and like spend time with her and also like be social with friends and sleep and all the things that you need to do. And it's like, oh man, day job. But I love my day job. So it's really weird and hard and complicated. Editing is something that I feel like I just get. I have edited well over 200 full-length manuscripts. I just really love working with authors to help them make their work as good as they can make it. I think everyone, every author, every writer needs an editor. And that includes those of us who are both editors and authors. We still need editors for our own work. So this literally applies to every single person out there who's writing. I think you will always need an editor because we are too close to our own work to be able to step back and see it as a whole and see where the problems are or where things can be expanded or things that are unnecessary in the book. We always need that extra set of eyes to help us pinpoint those places in our own work. And I love helping authors do that. I do feel like I have a good grasp of what the author needs because I am an author myself and I have my own editors and I know what that relationship is like. And sometimes it is for an editor really easy to just think of a someone else's book they're working on as mm-hmm. just another day at work at the day job because editors are so, so, so busy and have a million things on their plate. They just want to go home and binge Netflix too. And I definitely understand how that can happen. But then I always try to take a moment and step back and say, no, this is someone's book. This is their baby. This is their everything right now. And you know what that's like. So remember that. Treat it with the respect it deserves. So I do feel like I have that ability to see both sides of things. But that said, I am pretty Mm -hmm. hard on my authors because I know they can do it. I know that they can take this book to the next level or five levels above. They just need a push. And I will always tell authors what they're doing right. I will always tell them what I love about the project or the characters or even just on a line-by-line basis, like what bits really speak to me as far as writing and lovely turns of phrase, because that's important too. Mm -hmm. But I will also mark up the hell out of manuscripts because why not? If there's something that can be tweaked to be that much better, then why not give the author that opportunity to do that? And sure, they can disagree and they can reject a change and that's fine. I do want to let them know every step of the way what I'm thinking as a reader, as I'm going through their book and what the readers will be thinking in that same moment and if they might want to reconsider any particular element, I want to give them that chance to do that. I was at Crimson Romance for six years and we were with Simon & Schuster. We were actually, there's a bookstore in LA called The Ripped Bodice, which is a romance exclusive bookstore. And each year they do a diversity study about the state of racial and ethnic diversity in the publishing industry, particularly having to do with the diversity of the author base. 
Crimson Romance was number one this year, and which we were so proud of, by a wide margin, had the highest percentage of authors of color on our roster. And unfortunately, the state of publishing being what it is, especially since we were a digital imprint, self-publishing in romance is really our Mm -hmm. biggest rival. Simon & Schuster closed us earlier this year, which is really unfortunate. I haven't stopped editing. I am freelancing, and I've been working with a lot of my former Crimson authors have come back, and it's so nice to be able to help them pursue this next leg of their journey. A lot of authors that offer editorial services, and I think it's really wonderful that you also have a background in editing so that you're able to bring all of that to the table for your clients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that like before I was an official editor, I did a lot of critiquing of colleagues' manuscripts or of people I met online, critiquing, beta reading, all that stuff. I do mm-hmm. think there's a, a little bit of a difference between critiquing and beta reading and official editing. That difference is it's a very fine line, but probably comes with what your background in editorial and, and in publishing actually is. There are differences between beta reading, critiquing, like a critique partner and editing. Those are very different things. You have to have experienced all three to really get what all those differences are. I want to know what you are working on now and where listeners can find you online. Constantly, you know, working on new projects and looking Mm -hmm. for that next thing that's going to be the book that I'm going to spend two years on. A lot of proposals happening right now, lots of brainstorming happening right now. But I do have a picture book coming out. That's an official project. It's called The Haircut and it's coming out early 2020. We were saying how novels take about a year and a half to two years to get published. It is absolutely unbelievable that children's picture books take even longer than that because they are less than a thousand words. A lot goes into picture books, including the art, of course. So it does take a while, but I'm very excited about it. I co-wrote it with a friend of mine. Her name is Rachel Lyons about her son's journey coming out as transgender. And her son is 11 years old now. And when he was coming out a few years ago, there were really no books about kids like him. There are a few picture books about trans girls, none about trans boys, which was we found shocking. While a picture book about a trans girl is great because it's about transgender issues, the last thing a little trans boy needs to be reading about is more dresses and princesses when they've been trying to get away from that for their whole life. So we wanted to fill that gap in the marketplace and write a book about a little boy who is trying to get his parents to understand what he's telling them about being trans. And it's called The Haircut Mm -hmm. because the first short haircut is sort of the big rite of passage in a young trans boy's Mm -hmm. life, similar to what going out in a dress might Mm -hmm. be for a young trans girl. It's that big moment of like, oh my God, this is finally happening. And they're so happy and validated. So it's about a little boy's journey to getting his parents to let him get that first short haircut. I also have a podcast. I don't know if it's okay to plug it on here. Um, It's not about... It's not about writing at all. Um, My partner and I have a podcast called We Can Do This, Our Adoption Journey. And it's about our journey to adopting our daughter who we just brought home six weeks ago. We started documenting it last summer. uh, So it's been about a year. And the whole process, the adoption process is insane and crazy and beautiful. We started documenting it long before we knew who our daughter was or who our child was going to be. Podcasts are an amazing medium, and I love that 
you know, so many people are doing them because you meet people from all over the world and forge a community about any subject ever. And there's always going to be someone out there who is super into that subject too. So we've, we've found really wonderful support in the adoption community. And uh, if anyone wants to listen, we do talk about all kinds of stuff like sex and curse words and everything. So fair warning. My website is jessicaverdi.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jess Verdi, J-E-S-S-V-E-R-D-I. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>